Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Anybody else grew up watching Nick at Night when they had, like, black and white shows on? Yeah, no, I didn't think so. Uh, yeah, Fresh Friends. Okay, yeah, that's, I just grew up watching Fresh Friends. So, anybody else? Did you? Did you, like, uh, would they have Andy Griffith's show on and a couple of the others? Yeah. Uh, do you remember when it was not Nick at Night, Jeff, and it was just black and white TV? Yeah, real TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not the AI things of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I used to watch some of those shows and, and that, like, occasionally, and I actually thought that, like, when my parents were growing up, they grew up in black and white, and then Technicolor was introduced, and suddenly, like, things kind of came into color once again. This, you know, completely um, un- uneducated on all of that, but I, like, when I think of my parents' childhood, it was always, like, it was black and white, and wow, what was, what was it like when it was finally color? This is what it means to live under the phrase, he is risen. For the power of the resurrection to come into your life is the difference between watching black and white TV and color TV, to f- experience the fullness of creation. I mean, how the colors and the trees and all the actually getting rain in Colorado and having all this green and pop and the flowers and everything. This is what resurrection life can look like. But what do we do with it? Like what happens? What changes in our own lives with Jesus' resurrection life coming a part of it? A lot of people have famous last words. Steve Jobs said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Jane Austen said, I want nothing but death. (laughs) Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Just really owns it all. (laughs) Friends applaud. The comedy is finished, Beethoven said. Sister Louise Marie Therese said, a woman who can fart is not dead. And then she passed. (laughs) Her life passed. (laughs) Yeah, passed. Yes, exactly. So, yes. So, Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. Uh, Eugene Peterson said, wow. Thank you. Bach said, don't cry for me. For I go where music is born. I feel like what these people said as their last words, whether they meant them to be their last words or not, really kind of put an exclamation point to their life to really reflect who they were and how they lived. At 
Presbytery last week. I'm going to pull some of these things together. So, Presbytery last week, uh, there was a presentation um, for um, uh, concerning Gen Z and how do we minister to them? What does that look like? Um, and really, one of the one of the presenters said um, it comes down to three questions that they're asking: Who am I? Where do I belong? And what am I to do with my life? Who am I? Where do I belong? And what am I going to do with my life? Said so these are identity, belonging, and purpose questions that they have. And I thought, um, and the, and it hits more for them. It hits deeper for them because there are more options for how they're going to define themselves. There are fewer communities of belonging. We're more radically individualistic than we ever have been in our society and our culture. And there's more public displays of what people's lives look like, what they're doing with it, whether that's through social media, um, especially through social media, we'll say. Um, But there are just more, we see more of what's going on in people's lives. And it it occurred to me, I think these these are concerns that we all have. Who are we? Where do I belong? And what am I going to do with my life? Identity, belonging, and purpose. Here we see Jesus' famous last words as recorded by Matthew. He gives a great commission. He gives an address to these concerns of identity, belonging, and purpose. But in it, he adds a fourth element, an element of promise. Jesus tells his disciples who they are, where they belong, what they exist for, and he promises them as well. Let's look at these things. Identity is the beginning part of this. It says that 11 disciples shown up, and just the way 11 rolls in, it is not 12. It is just an imperfect, unfulfilled number. They show up. And they see Jesus, and they worship, and they doubt. Two very integral things uh, coming together. Two things that seem to be separate. They're not separate groups. It said that they all worshiped, and some of them doubted. Now, a number of commentators and Bible study notes try to kind of dismiss this verse. They say, well, there were others present with the 11 who were there. The apostles would never doubt. It seems like they doubted um, throughout their lives and in almost every occurrence in which Jesus shows up after his resurrection, they are doubting as well. Some others say that the word doubted here mean, meant hesitated. They weren't, they weren't quite ready to worship, so they hesitated in their worship. Maybe in our own minds we feel a dissonance between the words worshiping and doubting. Worshiped is the Greek word proskuneo, which often means to kneel or to bow prostrate. The core word of this, though, is kissing, kuneo. A kiss is an outward show of affection towards one another. It's a heart motivation. It's an emotion. It's something that happens out of how we feel. Doubt, however, happens when our head gets involved. We second guess. We have second thoughts. We question our affections. Are we just, are we just operating out of our, our heart and wearing our heart on our sleeve, or are we really thinking this through? Our brains and our hearts don't line up. The disciples are experiencing doubt in the midst of their worship. I think we've all experienced this at one point or another. And I don't think I've shared this story, but I feel like I have. So 
Look, I only have so much of life to share with you. So um, <laughs> when Stacy and I were engaged, we were, um, we were practicing cuneo. Uh, we were expressing our affections for one another. And the thought went through my head, and since I think my mouth was engaged and operating, it came directly out of it without a filter. And this was the thought. We met on March 17th. We were engaged August 19th, and we were getting married on February 5th. So less than a year of knowing each other. And the timeline went through my head, and what came out of my mouth was, I don't think I'm ready for marriage. In the middle of this expression of affection towards one another. And what my, the fullness of the thought was something more like, I don't think I know what is all going to be involved in being married, which is very normal, very natural. But what I said sounded a whole lot more like, I don't want to get married. But it was my doubts that were catching up to me. My brain was processing this information and what we were going to be doing and what our lives were going to look like. And I'll tell you, like um, 12, 12 years down the line, it looks a whole lot different than what I thought it was going to look like even then. But our minds and our hearts come together. And that, that is what one of the beautiful images, why we have this covenant, this legal document binding us together as married folks in this relationship so that when our, when our doubts come in, we are still able to work through them and process them in the midst of our affections. Or when our affections wane, we can go through and say, look at the life that we have lived together and think through it. Uh, Frederick Bruner, a phenomenal um, commentary uh, theologian, said, Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt. Christians are both believers and doubters, adoring and wondering, trusting and questioning. And one of the instructions that we should take is to doubt our doubts, to question our questions and wonder and really dive deep. They're not roadblocks. They're not walls that we run into, but they are um, deeper. Uh, the, the opportunities for deeper understanding of who we are, how God has made us, and who he is making us into as well, how he can show forth more of himself to us. Gen Z is faced with something like um, 45 different genders and orientations to choose from. The letters go well beyond the Q+. They're 16 flags. It's a lot of flags. You can have more than one. You can have more identities, more genders. It's fluid. It's not binary. You can look into yourself. Well, I think the problem is, and I think not just Gen Z, this is a problem overall that we've experienced, is that we stop too quickly as we look into ourselves. Teresa of Avila has a wonderful book called The Interior 
interior castle. And the metaphor that she uses for who we are and learning about ourselves is this castle with um, seven or eight rooms in which you proceed deeper and deeper in an understanding of who you are. And she likes the word rooms or dwellings because these are not just phases. We don't, you don't just move from one to another, but you, you move back and forth along the whole line. And she says as you approach and when you go into the first room and the second room, you're really just starting this journey of getting to the center room, which is the throne room where the king resides, that God lives deep inside of you. But she says these first few rooms, snakes still get inside. The things of the outside still penetrate into who you are, and you're not quite on your way to understanding who you truly are. The ways of the world still infiltrate and you go through and you get to um, room uh, four, I believe, and she has names for all these. Um, but you go, oh, i got to choose whether or not I'm going to continue in deep on this. Or maybe I'll move back to where I was comfortable. Not where I was healthy, but where I was comfortable in defining myself. Calvin says, without the knowledge of yourself, there is no knowledge of God. But without knowledge of God, you'll never truly know yourself. To truly know yourself is a lifelong journey. We're always finding out new things about who we are, and yet this happens most fully and most deeply when we are in a relationship with the one who can hold both our doubts and our worship. If God is big enough, I believe he is, to be, for, to be able to uh, take on our worship of him, then he is also big enough to take on our doubts about who he is and about who we are as well. Belonging. Second uh, thing that Jesus gives us is belonging. This is uh, what he says here. Um, I'll read it again, verses 18 and 19. He says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is first and foremost a statement of who Jesus is, his identity, which is why we can have belonging to him. Jesus has full executive authority and power on heaven and on earth, the things visible and the things invisible. Matthew's gospel is replete, replete with the phrases like, he taught with one who has authority. He has authority to summon angels. He has authority to forgive sins, something that only belonged to God. And these were statements about Jesus' earthly ministry even before his resurrection. But it's second, a statement of belonging. It says, you belong. You can belong to Jesus. And what he instructs uh, his 11 disciples to do is to invite people into this belonging, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In short, and I think this transcends whether we believe it or not, I think this transcends both our worship and our doubts, is that you belong to the life of God. You will understand fully, most fully, who you are when you see yourself seated with God at the place of God's grace. This, this beautiful um, uh, image that we have of Rublev and this open uh, table center to be able to sit down into the life of God, the Trinity, he welcomes us 
there. He says, all nations make disciples of all nations. This is a worldwide, international, universal universal uh, belonging. If all authority in heaven and on earth lies with Jesus, then there is no people group, no geography, no person who is outside the grasp of the grace of God. I think this is an audacious and ambitious claim he is making here. And he's borrowing it, uh, a banking term. When he says into the name of, he's saying you are being placed into the account of, into the possession of the triune God. Being a baptized disciple of Jesus means that you belong to the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who will never let you go, the one who has conquered death, the one who has made a way for life, who will not leave you or forsake you, who goes before you, who loves you, who pursues you with his grace and mercy and love all the days of your life. He never stops going after you. In your baptism, you have been handed over to Jesus who went to the cross so that the sin that separated you from God was no longer a barrier, but now that grace binds you into the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one is excluded from the reach of God. You can't exclude yourself, and you can't exclude someone else. But we love to do so, don't we? We love to make up reasons and rules why we're not going to be, um, why we don't belong, and why others don't belong either. Groucho Marx uh, famous, famously wrote the uh, Friars Club in New York and said, I don't want to belong to any club that would accept me as one of its members. That's what I felt when I... Uh, was accepted into my doctoral program, <laughs> was like, oh, is this really the right program for me if they're going to let me in on the first try? Every time we re-enter the room together, us the 20 of us, we always have this re-kind um, of configuring and figuring out who we are. And we've spent, um, going into this, we've spent a, a month of our lives together at this point. Some of us have shared uh, Airbnbs together, other uh, we've shared many meals together, but we always enter into the same thing. As uh, a friend of mine, one of the uh, participants, as I looked over, um, she was wondering if she still belonged into the room because of the things that had developed in her family uh, over the course of the previous seven months. And now we're going off to Iona uh, together to spend um, you know, a week on an island that's three miles by a mile <laughs> wide. We're going to have to figure that out again. Do we all belong? Can we be here together? We all desire to belong. The other half of the church is a book written by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, and they say that the first question our brain asks when we enter a room is, do I belong here? We survey the room. We check um, clothing. We check racial affiliations. We check um, what it looks like overall, what, you know, the accessories that people have um, on, their, on their bodies and on their persons. We make evaluations. Most of the time we put ourselves on a ladder of comparison, claiming that we don't belong because we're better or we're worse from people. If we believe we're better than them, we have pride and arrogance. If we're worse, we're just going into our own insecurities and fears. But the, both of these things focus on our self. And if we are unwilling to allow ourselves to belong, what keeps us from believing others don't belong also? 
and seeing and hearing that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus allows us to look to him for our belonging rather than what is in ourselves. And we can say on account of him, we belong. We find our identity in him. We find our belonging in him. May others do that as well. May we point them to that. This is the third thing, the purpose of our lives as well. I'm going to keep reading. This is working out. Jesus says again, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Grammatically, this phrase here, make disciples, is the main verb. Going, baptizing, and teaching are all participles that help explain and define what it means to make disciples. This first word, go, has the force of get going. What are you waiting for? Get out of here. It's like sending the kids off to school finally. Go! This is, uh, isn't so much of an invitation, but an outvitation for us to go out. I know we gather together and we have this beautiful time together and we want to invite people in here, but we do that by going out and being in, um, in culture, in our lives, in the communities where God has placed us. We're not a, a holy huddle, if you were, but we are called to go out into the world. Baptizing is inclusion into the community and entrance into the body of Christ. It was, ah, Teddy, so beautiful to be able to do that last week and to be able to celebrate that. It's not a symbol, it's not a mere symbol, but it's a means of grace which binds us and enjoins us, tethers us, puts us into the possession of the triune God. Teaching is learning the customs of the community. All communities, all cultures have customs and ways in which we participate. The force of this word isn't so much doctrinal, but practical theology. All theology has to be able to be lived out, Eugene Peterson says. We see this uh, throughout Matthew's gospel. He gives us the greatest commandment when um, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. The Lord gives us his prayer in Matthew 6, 5 that we pray every Sunday. His summary of his teaching is uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which seems almost insurmountable and unrealistic to be able to do. But it is a long, slow view approach of seeing our lives transformed into the likeness of Christ. Discipleship is this long, slow approach. It's, uh, see, Jesus didn't say, preach, convert, win people to me. Instead, he chose a very personal word, disciple them train them, be in relationship with them, demonstrate to others what being a doubting worshiper looks like who still belongs to God. Discipleship creates intimate community as we live together in relationship with the triune God. What, what can, what does this look like? Um, I was invited to um, stage at a restaurant in Chicago, one that I eventually worked at. But stage um, can mean kind of anything, but it's um, entering into a kitchen to learn how they prepare, how they cook, and how they serve food. Um, and given the constraints they have, given the philosophy they have, and all of those 
those wonderful things. Um, experiences can really vary, but this is mine. Went into Bon Soiree. I knew this place a little bit. I'd been familiar with it. I'd eaten there a few times, and but they brought me in to be in the back of the house, the kitchen, uh, to see you know how they say the sausage is made. We, I don't think we ever made. We didn't ever, never made sausage, but to see how the sausage is made. They gave me a chef's coat. My name wasn't on it, but it had the name of the restaurant on it, Bon Soiree. I was given various prep work tasks. I was shown how they wanted the food prepped, prepared, seasoned, plated, um, perfected at times. Um, there was a, a huge learning curve in all of these things, not just in head knowledge and what food was what and you know all the different spice blends and what we had to do and how to um, saute or julienne or whatever it was, um, but in practical skills, how to hold a knife, how to not cut yourself on a mandolin, how to break down an entire pig and slice and dice and all of those things. Eventually what happens, though, is that after these repetitive motions and, and doing them on a regular basis, muscle memory just takes over. The chef could just say, make this dish. You don't even have to look at your recipe card anymore. You um, could... Uh, um, he could say dice, he could say chop, he could say I need this, and you knew, knew exactly what he wanted from you in any given moment. This is what discipleship looks like, working shoulder to shoulder with people around you in a kitchen to be able to feed and nourish those around you. We invite and we immerse in doing this. Baptism, then teaching. There is a flow from these two things. Baptism brings us into the community, and teaching is learning the ways of the community. We invite people to meals. We invite people to worship. We invite people into our lives, and then we immerse ourselves in Jesus' life. We seek forgiveness. We serve people with nothing in return, and we let his life flow out of ours. We invite and we immerse. We learn the rhythms of grace. But there's a promise also. Last little verse of 20, last part of 20, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. With you always and forever. God's presence and his power and authority is guiding you. You are not alone. This I am statement is emphatic. It would have reminded the disciples of Yahweh's name, God the Father. I am who I am. Jesus is declaring the I am is with them. And it's present oriented. It's not future and it's not past. It's not I was with you. Now get out there and do it. It's not I will be with you when you finally go. But it is I am with you. Uh, he says, I am with you here and now. He says, I am with you. The withing is the promise of the Yahweh God to his covenant people. Those whom he has brought into his possession, he is with. It's not protection from distress, but it's comfort in the middle of distress that God is with you. It enables our obedience to the Great Commission. And he says, always to the end of the age. Not just some of the days. Not just the days when we make it out the door and we said our prayers and we feel spiritually fit and we feel his presence with us. 
No, it is all the days of your lives to the end of the age that Jesus is with you, going far beyond our own lives. Jesus will accomplish his mission beyond our imperfect efforts, beyond our doubts in the middle of our worship. It doesn't always seem like this. There are many other power structures that will tell us otherwise. There are um, voices in our lives that will say um, God is not with us or not all authority and power um, is, with, uh, is with Jesus. And so we don't have this all-powerful Yahweh God who is with us. They are seeming to be louder and more near than he will seem to be. But remember, Jesus' power and authority doesn't look like theirs. When he says, I am the good shepherd, He says, I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down for my sheep. Uh, This came um, really poignant to me as um, leaving Atlanta the last year we were there. um, there I had a lot of conflict with my boss. He would call me in and berate me on a pretty regular basis. And this happened occasionally throughout my time there. But as I processed this, I started going to a counselor, and she said, I think, I think we should do some EMDR. Everybody familiar with EMDR? No, it's eye, help me out, it's eye movement. Um, I looked it up and I forgot. Um, so basically what it does, <laughs> there's a couple different ways. Um, the way I did it was I held two uh, sensors in my hands and they would basically vibrate back and forth. And what this is doing is getting your brain, to both sides of your brain to talk to one another. Um, so you have bilateral brain um, interaction. So you're not just sitting in your kind of right brain, if you will, if we can um, go into the creative side. You're not just sitting in your logic side, but both sides of your brain are working together in this. And one of those very specific episodes I was sitting in that she wanted to, to, to try this out on, I was sitting in his office, and um, he was just going off about something. Um, and there were two chairs there. Uh, there was, uh, this is how it was actually set up. There were two chairs there, um, two of those Ikea low kind of uh, lounge chairs that um, every college student or seminary, I had one in seminary, some uh, student has. Um, I was sitting in one and d- going through this e- EMDR, which is a very imaginative um, exercise. Um, she said, where is Jesus there with you? And in that moment, Jesus was sitting in the other chair, and he reached over and he grabbed my forearm, and then he got up, and he came and sat in the chair with me, kind of on top of me. And then he said, you can go. And I was able to get up and walk out of the room, and Jesus took on this beratement that I was receiving. Is this real? this imagined? I think we've been given an imagination to be able to go back and see Jesus' presence with us in these moments. And what EMDR does in particular is it allows the story to be reformed and reshaped so that we can sit back and see Jesus' presence with us. And I, we sit around this table, the table that's over there, um, every night, and w- I, sometimes I think, sometimes, not often, I think it'd be nice because we have six chairs around the table. We're a family of five. If that other chair was filled, 
And what I have to do imaginatively is say, maybe that chair is filled already. Maybe Jesus is sitting around this table with us already. I know other friends who have been in similar situations and they've been in a room and there just happens to be an empty chair in there and they say, Jesus is in that chair. Jesus is in this room with me at all times. Is this real? Is this imagined? Like I said, I think Jesus gives us an imagination so that we can see that he is with us. Because discipleship isn't a classroom experience. It's an everyday experience in which we learn, and we have to do that. We have to learn that Jesus' presence is with us as we belong to him. We don't do this perfectly. We won't always remember that the promise of him with us. We'll find other purposes in life. We won't invite people the way we should. We'll exclude ourselves or others. Um, we'll doubt. We'll quit worshiping at times or seasons, um, maybe even much of our lifetime. And I think that's what makes Jesus' last words even more incredible to me and more powerful. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, um, we're so quick um, to doubt, so quick to not believe of your presence with us, to believe that um, we have to do it on our own, that um, we have to find places of belonging on our own. Then we even doubt that well, <laughs> those are the places for us. Lord, give us um, uh, in your authority and in your power, speak to us so that we may know that we belong to you, that through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, you have reached down uh, to dwell with us, to be with us, no matter what is going on. Pursue us with your grace. Pursue us with your mercy. Help us to see the love that we have in you. We thank you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.